0: So we are in the book of Romans, super exciting, love the book of Romans, and Paul, who is the author of the book of Romans, as uh, you have already heard if you've been here the last few weeks, is really in many ways ideally suited for writing this particular book to this particular crowd. Paul is ideally suited and was designed by God to be a brilliant carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a world where the Jewish way and the Gentile, or Greek way, were colliding as the gospel was coming around all of them and unifying two worlds that had spent an eternity separated. And so Paul, because of his upbringing, because of the way God designed him, was suited to be the carrier of the gospel to the Gentiles while also helping the Jewish people of his day understand that. Why? He was born in Tarsus, but born a Roman citizen, educated in the Greek philosophy and poetry, understood the mind of the Greek, yet was Jewish, educated in the best Jewish schools. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the Jewish elite. And so he had the incredible ability to articulate the gospel to the Jewish mind in a way that it could be understood and articulate it to the Greek mind in a way that it could be understood and bridge the gap between those two worlds. And this particular letter, the letter of Romans, is perhaps one of the best displays of how God used Paul to do this because of the context into which he was writing. If you were here last week, you remember that as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, the church in Rome has a very, very strange dynamic because the Roman church was not planted by Paul, it was planted by Peter. Earlier on, and when Peter established the church in Rome, it was established as a primarily Jewish church, perhaps even exclusively Jewish church, as many were before the great shift as the gospel jumped the lines into the Gentile world. So you have this church in Rome that becomes Jewish, then you have Gentiles being converted to the beautiful way of the gospel, and they enter into the church. They are new believers. They are less mature than the Jewish people. They don't have the long history and the long understanding of Scripture, and so they step into the church, minority Greek and majority Jew. Then In the late 40s, A.D. 48-49, Claudius, who was uh, emperor then, expelled all the Jews from Rome, partly because of all the riots that were going on, because some of the Jewish leadership were struggling with this new thing, the way, this gospel that had come in. So he expels all the Jewish people from Rome, and of course, as he does that... Uh, we have this big shakeup in the church because all the mature leadership and the majority of the church has to leave and what's left is a bunch of Gentiles that are still kind of immature and don't really know what to do. So they have to take over the church and they begin to grow in Christ. The church grows and grows as a Gentile church and by the time Claudius dies and the Jewish people come back to Rome and come back into their church, it is now a majority Gentile church, minority Jewish church, and all the leadership is Gentile. So you can imagine as the Jewish leaders come back in and they're like, oh, it's different now. And the the Gentiles are like, "Eh, we're kind of leading now. You can imagine that that created some dynamic, right? And so in many ways, there was almost a flippant dynamic where often we've seen the Jewish people looking down on the Gentiles. You now kind of have the Gentiles kind of looking at the Jewish people and going, well, you, you all left. And now you all are back and you're welcome here, but we got this. And so Paul is writing into this context because he wants to shift his headquarters from Antioch to Rome so that he can start expanding the gospel from there. And in so doing, he is preparing the church in Rome uh, to understand the complexities and simplicities of the gospel so that they would be unified as a church in this incredible collision of Gentile and Jew in a unique way in in the story of the Roman church. And he's setting all of that up so that he can come and see the gospel expand from there. And who better to do this than Paul? And so in the introduction of the book of Romans, as we found out last week, Paul unpacks this with them. And then he says to them, the solution to all of this tension in the church and all of the struggle in the church is in fact a clarity of the gospel. The more we understand the beauty of the gospel, the more central our like-mindedness will become and we will be unified despite our history. Because unity can never be, in a sustained way, the result of us just being the same, because that is not biblical unity. If we are just the same, we just create a church where everyone's the same, then we are not unified, we are just the same. But when we are very different, which is what we are ought, ought to be, because we were created differently, And we find our unity in the beauty of Christ and what He's done for us, in the fact that we belong to Him and He belongs to us, and so therefore we belong to one another, then that is the kind of unity that displays the beauty of the gospel. So Paul is writing into all of this. And as he unpacks in that first chapter of the book of Romans, the solution to the issues in the church between Jew and Gentile is a clear understanding of the gospel Paul bothers not just to tell them that, but to unpack the gospel in some of its beauty and detail so that they can start going, wow, I see how the particular perspective that the Jewish mind has of the gospel and the particular perspective that the Greek mind has of the gospel, when brought together, can expand the beauty of the gospel to all of us and show us the grand and wondrous mercies of God. So, to understand what Paul's about to write, we need to have a quick clarity on how the Jewish person of this day and the Greek person of this day would have experienced the collision with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, for the Jewish person, remember that they come from a long heritage of prophecy and scripture, talking about one who would come to rescue them, set them free from exile, and set them up as the people of God. So this has been prophesied literally starting with Adam and Eve as God spoke to them, and then onward through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, all the way through to where they are today. So the Jewish people have heard the promises of God for as long as they've grown up, Their generations before them have held those promises and they've been waiting for the Messiah. Now their understanding of the coming of the Messiah was that the Messiah would come to rescue his faithful people uh, from exile or from oppression from the pagan world around them. So they are surrounded by the pagans. They are under their oppression. uh, the, The Messiah would come, establish Israel, set his throne up in Jerusalem overcome the oppressor, judge the pagan, and set up his people as faithful. You with me? That's what they understood. So when Jesus came onto the scene, they were expecting fully that Jesus would come. He would overthrow the Roman Empire, set up his throne in Jerusalem, rise the people of Israel to the point of being over everyone, and judge the pagan world. Then God's faithfulness would be realized in his rescue of his people and his righteous judgment of the unclean. There it is. Then Jesus came and they saw Him as Messiah and realized He was coming and then Jesus died. And they were like, oh, that didn't go well. Rome is stronger than we thought. Then Jesus rose from the dead and they went, wow, Jesus is bigger than we thought. And they realized that in the gospel... The rescue of God was much bigger than they had initially anticipated. So the Jewish people we're talking about in the church of Rome, they are believers now. They love and know Jesus. So they are not under the impression that He's simply going to rescue them from Rome. They now understand the gospel as something much larger than that. But they still see it in the same boat. God made a bunch of promises to us. He was faithful to keep those promises to us. And He happened to also Spill over and bring in the pagans and not judge them. That's a bonus check. God is not only faithful to us, but he's also merciful to them. Do you see the difference here? Faithful to us, merciful to them, right? And that was the view that the Jewish people would have had. Because the Jewish people were the faithful people of God, and the Greeks were the pagan sinners who needed judgment. God's faithfulness to them, God's mercy to the Greeks. Now, the Greeks had a very, very different experience of the gospel because the Greeks didn't have a history. They didn't have a bunch of promises. They didn't have scriptures. They had a boatload of gods who were all super confusing. And so when they were growing up, they were like, we got more gods than them, so that makes us cooler. And then they encountered the gospel and they realized that the one true God, who was in fact the God that had revealed all this to the Jewish people, had actually not just come for the Jewish people, uh, the people of Israel, but had always intended to really bring them into the picture. But here's the deal. They had known for a long time, if you were Greek, the Jewish people have been telling you forever, you are the unclean, you are the pagans, you are the broken, and we are the faithful people of God, you are going to experience God's judgment, and God is going to fulfill His promises to us. You see that? And so when they encountered the gospel, and instead of being judged and experiencing the wrath of God, they experienced the mercy of God in that God made them righteous uh, so that they could participate in His story and know Him. That is an incredible thing. So for them, it was not about God's faithfulness fulfilling these long-established promises because they didn't have any of those promises, and the promises seemed to be for the people of Israel, not for them because they'd never heard them. For them it was, I was unclean, I was broken, I was old, and God made me new. So for the Jewish people, it was this. God keeps His promises. When God starts something, He finishes it. And that is realized in the gospel. You see, God promised He would, and He did. To us, that's awesome. Plus, He did it for them, that's even better. For the Greek it was, I was old, now I'm new. I I was broken, now I'm fixed. I was unrighteous, now I'm righteous. God makes all things new. And so you had the Greeks with the God makes all things new, and the Jews with God is faithful to keep His promises and finishes what He started. And they came into it with these two general understandings of the gospel. Now, though we recognize that both those exist In this time, that was the primary format. So for the Jewish people, they were like, you guys just don't get the history. And for the Greeks, they're like, you guys just don't get what it's like to be broken and then fixed. Because you just got a promise fulfilled. We got made new. You see the difference? And what Paul's going to do right now is he's going to talk to a church like that. And he's going to say, you know what? Jewish people, you're right. God is faithful. Wow, that's awesome. Greeks, you're right. God makes all things new, but both of you are limited in your view of the gospel and just wait till I show you what happens when you understand how those lines cross. So with no further ado, let's go take a look what he does. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 1039, 1039 Romans chapter 1. If you're using a smart device or you brought your own page paper Bible, Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. So we dealt with that two weeks ago, who Paul was, his history, and what God had done with him to prepare him to be exactly the man he needed him to be to carry the gospel into this crazy collision between the Jews and the Greeks. Set apart for the gospel of God. And now he is going to describe that gospel of God. Watch. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's just a sentence, but it means so much. You see, what Paul just did here for the people of this church, particularly the people that were Jewish, he's speaking primarily to them, though he's speaking to everyone because he's going to tie it all together. He says this, guys. The gospel that I am going to bring to the table, the, the revelation of God that reveals Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done, this gospel is in fact the same gospel, the same promise, the same truth that was revealed in the Scriptures through the prophets. You see, it could have been easy for the Jewish people because they had such a misunderstanding of how God would play His story out that they would have thought this reality that Paul is bringing to the table is is a different gospel or a changed plan or a separate thing from what God had promised because we were never actually rescued from Rome, right? Now, the people he's writing to are already beyond that, but Paul is reminding them here and he is authenticating for them that the gospel that was promised you the good news that God would rescue you and set you free from exile, from bondage, from brokenness, has indeed been realized, and this gospel I'm about to talk about, it is the one that had been promised. So he is telling the Jewish people, you are right to experience God's faithfulness through this gospel. This is, in fact, God being faithful in fulfilling His promises to you. This gospel that was promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The central reality around the gospel is a person. See, oftentimes we talk gospel a lot, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because the gospel is the revelation of the work of God to rescue us, right? We don't worship the gospel. We don't stand in awe of the gospel insofar as the story, We stand in awe of what that story reveals and who that story reveals. And so he says, look, the gospel that was revealed early on in the Scriptures and is the fulfillment of the promises of God, it concerns His Son. It concerns His Son. And who is His Son? Look, who was descendant from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there He just nailed it down. Jesus was, in fact, the embodiment and fulfillment of all of the promises God made to to Adam, to Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to the prophets, to all of them. Jesus is that fulfillment. He is the Messiah. And how do we know? Because in human terms, he fulfills all the prophecies. He was in the line of David. He uses that example here. And in spiritual terms, he demonstrated himself to be more than just a man when the Spirit of God in his holiness raised him from the dead. So the point that he came alive from the dead, we all kind of went, this ain't normal. Right? And so that's when you're like, okay. Okay. So yes, he fulfills the prophecies, but he also was more than that. When he died, we thought all was lost, but then he came back from the dead. And in that declaration, we knew exactly who he was. And so he's saying, yes, Jewish people, yes. What faithfulness God has shown, and not only faithful to fulfill his promises to us, but more than faithful because he was more than we thought. And then he says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Here He just says, look, this long set of promises that were made to you, Israel, to be faithful to you, it turns out that God was making these promises to you so that you would recognize the Savior. And when you recognized the Savior and received Him for who He was more than you ever imagined, it turned out He wasn't only for you but also for the Greeks. And now God will use you to display this rich history to the Greeks so that they too would recognize Jesus and they too would have Him as Savior. Wow, how awesome is that? And so he goes, man, what, how cool is it to be Jewish? That's pretty awesome. And so he speaks to the church and he tells them this is the beginning of the beauty of the gospel. God promised it. God completed it. It wasn't just for the Jews but for everyone. But he used the Jews to recognize it, to carry it, and to show it to the world. And then right after that, from verse 7 all the way through uh, verse 15... He then unpacks what we unpacked last week, right? Uh, How that then impacts the reality of a church that has this mix in it. And then verse 16, as though to bookend this, starting with the Jewish people, yes, you're right, the gospel does display God's faithfulness in the promises that He's kept, and you were the carriers of the gospel so that others would know it. Well done, check that box, you are right. As though to bookend that idea, he says this, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And as you remember probably from last week, Here beautifully he starts with the Jew and then the Greek because remember we're in a church where the Greeks, the Gentiles, were sort of looking down on the Jewish people going you bring to the table your rich heritage, you bring to the table your long promises that were made to you, you keep doing that but listen, look at us, we got this covered now, feel free to join us but those things, that history, that, that wealth, it ain't for us it's for you. So you hold on to that all day long. We have encountered the gospel and we have experienced the righteousness of God and that is enough for us. And so he's writing to them saying this, my dear Greek brothers and sisters, I I hear you, but let's, let's remember something here for a second. If God had not shown himself to the people of Israel, If he had not chosen a nation for himself out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if he had not developed the story that he did, if he had not revealed himself through the prophets, if he had not made the promises, if there was no holy scriptures and the Jewish people did not know the things of God, then no one would have recognized the Savior when he came. And so you wouldn't know Jesus. See what he's saying? You stand over the Jewish people saying, your heritage is not for me, it's for you. But their heritage is for you. Because without their heritage, you don't even know Jesus. He gave this revelation first to the Jews, then to the Greeks, because it was through the Jewish world of carrying those long centuries of information, passing it down by the power of the Spirit, that we would even recognize the Savior when He came, so that you would even know Him as you do. This righteousness that you have encountered of God that has changed your life and made you new is only yours because of what God revealed to the people of Israel. So do not look at them as a piece of history that has nothing to do with you. That piece of history has everything to do with you and for you. But then, in that simultaneous moment, just as he says, first to the Jews, then to the Greeks, he now adds this little sentence which speaks so deeply to the experience that the Greek person would have had of the gospel. Look, first to the Jews, then also to the Greeks. For in it, in what? In the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So now, he takes that component of the revelation of the gospel... That showed us that our righteousness could never be enough to bring to the table. Could never be enough to save us. Could never be enough to satisfy God's justice. And that He instead imputed His righteousness to us. Which means He gave it to us. He put it over us. We do not have a righteousness of our own that He made good. We have His righteousness given to us. So we are the recipients of the righteousness of God. It is imputed to us, which means what he's saying here is the righteousness we now carry, which was revealed through the gospel, is a righteousness from God by faith, not by works. Because works, a righteousness of works is a self-righteousness. But a righteousness of faith is by definition not a self-righteousness because it is by faith. It is the righteousness of another given to you that makes you righteous. And he just said, that was also revealed in the gospel. And how was that revealed in the gospel? Well, that was revealed primarily through the Greeks. You know why? Because they were unrighteous, right? I mean, they were the the tangible display of unrighteousness. And so he says first to the Jews, this rich history is given. That turns out to be more than for the Jews. It turns out to be for everyone. And in the Greeks, also revealed in this gospel is the beauty of of a righteousness imputed to us because our righteousness wasn't good enough. God satisfies His justice not by ignoring our unrighteousness, but by taking on our unrighteousness and having it rip Him to pieces so that He could impute to us His righteousness because His righteousness makes us right and satisfies justice. So, in all of that, he says, Do you not understand that the gospel simultaneously reveals to us that a God who has promised us things from the beginning of time has kept them, has fulfilled them, has been faithful to them, and has shown himself faithful to us? And a God who requires justice to be satisfied has satisfied it by making sure that the unjust are the recipients of righteousness that is not their own but that is His. See, what the Jewish people had a hard time understanding even now was that they were equally as horrid as the Greeks. This is this is best experienced in our setting if you grew up in the church, right? If you grew up your whole life in the church, and like, you know, when you were 13, you had a bad thought, and you're like, oh, that was a bad thought. It was right after Sunday school. And then when you were driving, you were 16 or 17, and something happened, you, you might have said a cuss word, and you were like, that was a cuss word, I said that. And then maybe a little later on, you listened to like Madonna, a, a particular song, and you were like, oh my gosh, I'm so out of crazy whack, right? And see, so you're like, okay, I, I, I was a bad, bad kid, right? And then you bump into other people that, that look at that and go, I, I didn't really know Jesus or I didn't grow up in the church. And, and so my entire life has a sequence of insane things. And so we all intellectually know that we are all equally broken, right? We have all equal unrighteousness in us because we are all unrighteous. But it's kind of hard to actually tangibly feel that when you've generally been a good Christian your whole life, isn't it? And so secretly, not on purpose, you just kind of go, well, I mean, I've kind of been faithful my whole life unlike, you know, other people. And don't get me wrong, God's mercy is for them as it is for me, but like generally I don't have that crazy story. See, this was the Jewish world. We are the faithful people of God. God has fulfilled His promises to us. And yeah, I mean, we did worship idols sometimes and abandoned God for other things, and we we did totally ignore Him multiple times, and we were taken to exile because of our incredible disobedience, and every time He did rescue us, we would uh, appease Him for a little while until we wanted what we wanted again, and then do it all over again. So certainly there's a couple of bumps in the road, but in general terms, if you compare us to the pagan world, we are like a cakewalk. We are like white as snow. And here's what He's saying. Greeks, if you think the history. Of the faithfulness of God doesn't matter to you, you're out of your minds. It matters a great deal to you because it was never just for the Jewish person, but it was the beautiful privilege of the Jewish world to carry those promises for you so that you might know Him. And, Jewish people, if you think you are the recipients of the gospel because you are the faithful people of God and the Greeks are the recipients of the gospel. Because somebody needed mercy. You are dead wrong. Everybody needed mercy because you are equally as unfaithful as they are, and the righteousness you carry cannot be your own. It is not because of your faithfulness that God brought you rescue. It is because of His grace and mercy that He brought you rescue, as much as it is true for the Greek. And so, if you cannot experience the gospel as something that is for you because you could not, you will never know it in its beauty and fullness. So, do you see what Paul's doing? God is faithful to keep His promises. He will finish what He started. Is that revealed in the gospel? Yes. Does that matter to all of us? Yes. God makes all things new and can undo the broken, the dead, and the bound. Is that for everyone? Yes. Is that revealed in the gospel? Yes. Is that beautiful? Yes. And when you bring those two together, here's what you have. God is faithful to finish everything. He starts and fulfill every promise he ever made. And he will complete the work he began in you. Check that box. And God will make all things new because he has made me new. Check that box. And when you do both, man, you get on your knees and you go, thank you. So Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, listen, the gospel, the revelation of God and what he has done The beauty of His faithfulness and His mercy is not just the solution for the church in Rome. It is the solution for life. It is the solution for us. You see, because we enter our dailiness every day and some days are light and easy and free and wonderful and some days are heavy and dark and difficult and overwhelming. Some months will go by in a... Quiet, float, and some months will feel like a crushing weight. Some years will be dark and hard, and some years will be wonderful and fun. That's going to be your day and mine, your month and mine, your year and mine, your decade and mine. But here's what he's saying. The gospel's revelation of the work of Jesus Christ that has rescued our souls, redeemed our future, and restored our purpose by His great mercy of imputing to us His righteousness so that we might be righteous despite our unrighteousness and fulfilling His promises that were for us as a human race. Those two things demonstrate to us that in our dailyness we can trust Him despite circumstance. See, if you think God promised that your days, because you know Jesus, are just going to be a cakewalk from now on, you are going to be sorely disappointed on multiple occasions, and you will not think to yourself, God exceeds my, my expectations. He is faithful, because every day you'll go, oh, I, I asked God to change this, and He didn't change it. What God reveals in Scripture is this, that we live on a planet of death, It it, it puts it this way in Scripture. All of creation is infected by sin and it groans for redemption. It waits for it. It can't stand it anymore. And he's talking about creation, the universe. He's like, the entire space in which we live is longing for Jesus' return so that we can be done with sin and death. And we live in that environment. Does that sound like light and pretty to you? And then we live in a body of flesh. And there's things about that that's said too. Uh, Your soul has come alive, but your flesh, it still longs to be part of this craziness. And so actually Paul puts it this way. You and I will be at war with our flesh every day. That sound fun to you? So we are at war with the darkness of this world because sin and death still reigns here. We are at war with the flesh of our own bodies and the way that our minds will long for things of old. And then he says, by the way, on top of that, you are at war at principalities and and, and powers in dark places that are bigger than you can imagine. We're at war with the enemy of God. So it's not going to be pretty all the time. In fact... Probably more often than not, if we're actually engaged in following Jesus on this planet, it's it's going to require in our redemptive activeness in the darkness of this world, taking on very uncomfortable things. But what the gospel says is this, if your day is light and easy, then allow the gospel the beautiful revelation of the gospel that he is faithful to finish what he completes and he has made you new and will make all things new to inform how to handle a light and easy day. Not to be caught up too much in yourself and going, oh, look what I have done for myself. But to say, God, you are so good that on a planet of death, in a body of death, with an enemy of death, I can have a good day. I mean, that in of itself is miraculous. And when the day isn't good, and things are hard, then too, we, we are not to fall into despair, but to say, I feel weighted and heavy, tired and weary. But yet, this remains true, that you will finish what you began and make all things new. You see, when Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have always experienced that as, don't be scared to tell your friends about Jesus, right? Haven't we? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. I'll go tell my friends. It's so much more than that. It is Paul saying, I am not ashamed of who I am in Christ, and I am not ashamed of who Christ is in me. And so each day as I face my circumstances, and I face my struggles, and I face my relational dynamics, and I face my resource realities, I will allow the gospel to measure who I am and to inform me because I am not ashamed of it, so I will not abandon it. I will not abandon what I know to be true of God. I will not bail on the hard things or take the easy path, because I am unashamed of what Christ has done in me. And then, as we preach the gospel to ourselves and go, remember, do not be ashamed of who you are in Christ. Is it a beautiful day? Is it a brutal day? That does not matter nearly as much as this, that you are the recipient of God's faithfulness over centuries and you are the recipient of God's righteousness to satisfy his justice so that you would not be a child of wrath. That is still true, even if you're having a really, really, really hard day. This is how we let the gospel inform us. And then we preach the gospel to each other. Are you struggling? Are you having a wonderful time? How is that shaped by your knowledge of the gospel? How does that change the way you deal with that? How does that change the way you put glory to God instead of yourself or the things around you? How does that change the way uh, that you feel despair versus just feeling heavy? And then, as the gospel becomes such good news to us, because every time we face every day, what we land on despite the day is He will finish everything He started. And he will make all things new. This he has revealed in the gospel. As that becomes our news, then carrying the gospel into the world will not be a burden or an obligation. It will just be what we do because it is such good news to us. How can it not bleed out of us? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And then, you ready? Here's the final piece. It's so awesome. When all of that becomes true for us because we fix our eyes on Jesus and we remember in our day what the gospel has revealed to us about who He is and what He's done, then the fruit of that is found here. I skipped over it super fast, but now we're going to go settle on it because this was the verse I was keeping for you. Watch. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Look. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom, so Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. What is the obedience of faith? See, obedience is a funny thing. Some of you and myself, you obey out of fear, right? If you don't obey the rules at your job, they fire you. That's a fearful thing, so you obey. If you're a child or a young adult in a home and your parents go, you're welcome not to do what I say, here's what's going to happen, you obey out of fear. That is not the obedience of faith, that is the obedience of fear, okay? And it is a perfectly appropriate way to live on this planet with people around you at times because sometimes we are foolish and don't want to obey at all, so fear is helpful. But that is not beautiful obedience. Sometimes we obey out of self-righteousness. I will show God how awesome I am or I will show the people how awesome I am. I need people to know how righteous I am. So I will obey, I will conform. Some of us have those personalities. We are rule followers, right? We, just, we do it because we just don't want to be in trouble and we want people to know we're, we're decent people, right? I don't fall in that category. so I just kind of break rules because that's what they're made for. Not all the time, but sometimes. And then there's the obedience of faith. When we have encountered the beauty of the gospel, and the only possible human response to that magnitude of mercy and that magnitude of faithfulness is to be what we were made to be, which is faithful. I obey because I believe. I obey because I believe. I don't have to obey. I just obey Because I believe. The obedience of faith. It is a beautiful obedience that is born not out of fear or out of self-righteousness. It is born out of faith and it is the authentication of what we know to be true. And so he says this. When you see the gospel for all that it is, when you see what the gospel reveals about Jesus and about what he's done, about his mercy and faithfulness, about your righteousness that has been given to you by him that isn't yours at all but his, when you know that to be true, you will be so overwhelmed with wonder that your next part in life will be to follow Jesus, to obey him. And in that kind of obedience, the world will see you and in you they will see Jesus. Do you see what he said? The obedience of faith will be born and you will bring glory to Christ to all of the world. This is our privilege. The recipients of a gospel rich in faithfulness and rich in mercy. And the participants in that gospel, not by self-righteous obedience or fearful obedience, but by the obedience born of faith A simple human response to the beauty of God. So what are we to do? Oh, so simple. The author of Hebrews said it well in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and finisher of your faith. And run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men and yet endured it because of the joy set before him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Man, may the gospel of Jesus Christ become the central revelation that informs our lives and keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we might live in the freedom of Christ unashamed of who we are in him and unashamed of who he is in us, that it might inform our whole life. He will finish what he started and he will make all things new despite your day. Let's pray. God, you are so good not because you make my day so good or because you make my circumstances so good or because you make my relationships so good or because you make my resources so good, but because you have rescued my soul, redeemed my future, restored my purpose in imputing to me your righteousness by your mercy to satisfy your justice so that I would not be a child of wrath but a child of God. And by fulfilling the promises you made to ancient men and women long since dead, and yet you kept those promises. Oh, how the revelation of the gospel reminds my soul that since you have kept your promises and since you have made me new, I know you will keep the promises yet to be realized And you will show me yet what it means to be made new. For you will make all things new. Help us to live in the obedience of faith. Trusting not what we see or feel. Not what we want. Not our weariness or our inability to endure. But trusting that whenever we choose a path that demonstrates the beauty of the gospel, we choose to believe the beauty of the gospel, that you are faithful and merciful, finishing what you start and making all things new. Thank you that through the Jewish people, you showed your faithfulness to all of us, and through the Greeks and Gentiles, You showed your mercy to all of us, that your faithfulness was for all of us and your mercy for all of us since we were all in need of rescue. We love you, Jesus. Amen.